good to be together with you in this sort of strange way. Uh, welcome to my living room. There's about a 40% uh, chance that at some point a child or a cat or a something uh, comes bounding through frame, but that's part of the fun of it, that we're all together uh, this way. I'm not going to try and be too formal or professional here, uh, despite that very fancy intro video that you saw. Um, I'm just going to uh, speak to you uh, as if it were a sermon, I guess, but but it's kind of this more casual, uh, 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 more intimate environment. It's interesting that way for me because on the one hand, I'm sitting here talking to uh, you know a camera on the other side of the room, and on the other hand, it feels uh, sort of special and close because here you are with me in uh, my space. Um, uh, kind of this sort of zoomed in look at at me and this and uh, and and I'm excited. I'm excited about what these next few weeks can bring as we interact together in this way as we start to look at that Facebook page and uh, and what it can do to create that sense of community. We're so fortunate to live in a time that uh, being apart from each other, being separate physically, uh, doesn't mean that we have to be disconnected. There are lots of ways that we can connect, and that's something I'm sure that we'll focus on as we continue uh, through these next few weeks, different ways that we as a body uh, can connect. But what I want to do is actually, um, the sermon that I have here is one that I started working on last week already, and it's kind of a crazy thing how much uh, things have changed over the last 10 days. It feels like uh, every day, whatever information you had the day before is already uh, irrelevant or uh, or been looked over or, uh, or, or no longer considered to be sort of the way people are thinking and opinions are changing rapidly. And, and, and so something written a week ago already feels maybe a little bit dated, but, uh, but I'll kind of grab from this a little bit. Uh, I think the, the truths in here, of course, are still relevant, as relevant as they were a week ago. Um, and, and we'll work through this together. Uh, so I invite you to join with me. I'm going to start by praying, and we will go from there. So let's pray. God, as we recognize your lordship over this, your sovereignty over this, your control over this, we continually remind ourselves that you are not out of breath. You are not overwhelmed. You are not frantic. You are not concerned. You are not... Uh, refreshing social media every 10 minutes to try and figure out what's coming next. You are not keeping your eyes peeled for the next uh, news bulletin or release from the government. You know what this is. You know what's coming tomorrow. And you've promised us that you are with us, that you're protecting us, that you're working things together for good. And we know that you are drawing everything to yourself in some way, God. We recognize that you're working towards a place where we are once again in full relationship, full connection with you, where creation is restored, where sickness and disease and all these things are fully conquered. We know that you already won that victory on the cross. And so as we kind of exist in this Lenten time, looking towards Easter, help us to connect with that in a real way. Help us to understand the truth of that. In your name, amen. So all of our lives have uh, changed pretty dramatically over the last uh, week and a half because of this virus, this COVID-19. 
uh, and in some ways it feels uh, like it's been a lot longer than a couple of weeks. It feels like it's been been months. And I think back to uh, the NHL being canceled uh, the, or the season being postponed last week, uh, Thursday, and uh, or a week and a half ago, I guess now. And it feels like forever ago that that happened. And so there's been lots of adjustments to make and there's been lots of opinions and lots of information, good information and bad information kind of flying around about the situation uh, that we find ourselves in. But one thing by now is pretty certain, and, and it's that this isn't just going to uh, go away. This is something that's having a pretty dramatic impact on all of our lives uh, in one way or another. And there are significant implications. There, there of course, are physical health implications as we look at what this virus is doing around the world. Uh, but there are also um, emotional and psychological and economical and spiritual implications for for what our lives are going to look like sort of over this season and change um, is always difficult in the best of times change is difficult um, but change at kind of this rapid pace is is difficult to wrap our heads around sometimes and and finding truth in the midst of all of these different opinions on social media and in the news is difficult so um, one just small encouragement as we sort of work through this is that is that if and when you are looking for information, if and when you are starting to feel overwhelmed by things, uh, when you're on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or wherever, uh, when you want information about this, uh, head directly to the source. Go to the Manitoba Health website, go to the World Health Organization, uh, go to the CDC, these, these organizations that know what they're talking about, that have experts that are following this thing and working this thing and uh, and understand that at a deeper level um, stay away from sort of the extreme views that you find uh, on both sides in in social media and other places and instead um, uh, look to the people who we have put in place as authorities and experts in these areas because because they have a good understanding of this and uh, and we want to respect their opinions and they will speak about this we trust in a way that's sort of measured and balanced uh, and informative and not uh, fear-mongering. So that's a good place to go. Uh, <clears throat> I recognize um, as we talk about these things that of course there are a variety uh, of opinions about all this. There's a, there's a whole spectrum of reactions that are going to be true uh, across the world uh, and even across our own congregation. There's going to be a wide variety uh, of reactions to this ranging from sort of skepticism, uh, frustration, sort of annoyance with how overblown maybe this all seems through to sort of anxiety and uncertainty and fear uh, about sort of the uh, the extreme danger that people might feel that they are in. And so what I wanted to do as we're walking through this together is to take a look at what I believe is a Christian response to this. What the proper response of Christians uh, in, in times like this. So what I want to do is just very quickly walk through um, a, a few different pieces of what I believe is a Christian response, not only in this specific situation, but generally in times of crisis and times of uncertainty, because uh, certainly Christians have walked through those times in many different contexts before. So let's walk through this together. The first uh, thing that I want to go through is a few things that we shouldn't do, that we should not do as Christians. So the first thing is this. We shouldn't be dismissive. Um, this is becoming, I think, harder and harder to do with COVID-19. Maybe maybe a week ago, uh, it would have been easier to just kind of hand wave it away. But but uh, certainly many of us still have that a little bit in our hearts. And I'll admit that in some ways, this is my own heart 
uh, reaction to this, especially early on, especially a couple of weeks ago, as information around this virus was circulating. And there were articles that you could find that would stack the numbers of coronavirus up and they compare it to sort of our seasonal influenza rates. And I'll go, yeah, that makes sense to me. You know, people are making mountains out of molehills. They're looking for an excuse to get riled up about things. People like to get uh, to react large to things, especially on social media. And, uh, and, and I would go, you know, it's a significant health issue for sure. It's something we want to watch, but it's nothing to be in a panic about. It's nothing that's worth really changing anything significant about the way that we live our day-to-day -day lives. For most people, this is just, you know, a mild cold. It's not really anything to worry about for most of us. And, and I would use that as maybe an excuse to not make changes or to not shift what I was doing. Um, Aaron, of course, would be the first to remind uh, me that if our carbon monoxide detector, for example, goes off in the night, it sometimes does, um, I just assume it's a faulty battery and take it out and, and, and turn the thing off. And I would counter that I'm right most of the time, but, but generally uh, uh, that would be my personality a little bit. You know, when the boil water, ad water advisories are in place, things like that, we've had a few of those over the year, I tend to go, it's probably a non-issue, it's probably sort of precautionary uh, and, and don't worry that much about, about uh, you know, drinking from the tap or those sorts of things over that time, which probably isn't an advisable uh, thing to do. Certainly nothing I would have officially sort of recommend. And so that's a little bit the way I lean uh, generally. But I think it's become clear with this that it's undeniably a significant global event. And if we're to be uh, responsible citizens, uh, if we're going to, as the Bible calls us to, uh, be respectful of our leadership and respectful of authority, then this isn't something that we can just hand wave away. Scientists and medical experts and government officials are taking this thing incredibly seriously, and we have a responsibility, a biblical responsibility, uh, to heed that warning, to respect that. Uh, that's not to say that we have to, you know, run out to Costco and, and, and buy eight containers of uh, yeah, toilet paper, uh, but rather what we could do is put aside our own sense of ego or toughness or invincibility or, or skepticism and, and honor the efforts of those who have a high view, uh, high level view of this thing, uh, all of course while trusting in the one that has the highest level view of this thing. Um, I asked my grandma earlier this week how she was doing and how she felt about this, and she said, uh, Jesse, I'm just doing what the church has always been called to do. Uh, pray, pay, and obey were, were her. So, so pray, I think that's obvious. And to pay, which, which uh, she would say means to be ready to sacrifice or support or look for ways to help in practical ways, whether that's financially or otherwise, and uh, to obey, to respect our government. Those are the things, she said, that we've been called to do from the beginning as the church. Pray, pay, and obey. So we shouldn't be dismissive of this thing. We should be respectful uh, of our governments. The second is this. We shouldn't be surprised. This sort of thing has happened before, so many times before. Chaos has gripped the world, pandemics have come and gone, world wars have happened, and genocides and, and natural disasters. Uh, this is the nature of the place and the time uh, in which we live. Generation upon generation uh, have dealt with their own crises, and we recognize that actually this sort of thing is going to happen again. It's the rhythm uh, of our current existence. Uh, in fact, when we read the Bible, when we read the words of Jesus, we see that this isn't simply random chaos, uh, but, but in, in their own way, these things are indicators of, of forward momentum towards things that have been promised, of moves towards uh, redemption and restoration. Um, from a theological standpoint, this shouldn't surprise us, is what I'm saying. Uh, in Mark, 
uh, on the Mount of Olives, Mark is, is, is speaking about uh, Jesus' interactions with his disciples. And the disciples ask, they're concerned, and they say, what is the end of the age going to look like? What is it going to look like as we step into this uh, time of, of uh, moving towards um, the completion of Jesus' mission, moving towards this total uh, restoration that's been promised? What is that going to look like? And Jesus answered, he said, see to it that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, claiming I am the Christ and will deceive many. You will hear wars, uh, of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. These things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginnings of birth pains. So Jesus says, when you live in the end times and and Generally, when you live in this time that we find ourselves in, we so often refer to it in the church as the in-between, this time where we recognize God has claimed victory over death and sin, and he's given us his spirit, he's here with us, and yet that victory hasn't fully been realized. We aren't totally there yet. We're still not seeing the full picture. We still don't have complete and perfect connection or understanding of what's going on. In this time, we should expect wars and rumors of wars we should expect famines and earthquakes and these sorts of things things are going to go wrong the world is fundamentally uh, broken it needs restoration uh, this verse uh, this phrase that Jesus has here it immediately draws my mind to Romans chapter 8 uh, where Paul is echoing Jesus's analogy and he says here in verse 22 we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. So Paul is talking here about how creation itself was damaged by the fall of man, by Adam and Eve's choice. And it was subjected to frustration, to bondage, and to decay. God tells us through his word that the world that we live in is broken. It's an imperfect world. And so when chaos comes, rather than uh, shake our faith or, or, or surprise us, what it is, is it's just another reminder that things are not as they should be in the world. And that, and that we have a God that is working behind the scenes to bring all of this to redemption. To bring us and creation and the whole world to this place of restoration. And these pangs of childbirth, these labor pains, are in their own way bringers of hope. That this is not the end. That we're being drawn towards the life and the world that God has always intended for us. So we shouldn't be dismissive and we shouldn't be surprised. Third, we shouldn't be selfish. We shouldn't be selfish. Um, in Genesis 3, there's, uh, it speaks about the fall of mankind when sin uh, first enters the world through Adam and Eve, through their mistakes, through their choices, and through the deception of the serpent, of Satan, the deceiver. Uh, immediately we see uh, the heart of sin, the, 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 the rotten core of sin. That's a good apple pun uh, there. The rotten core of sin. I, I characterized it in a sermon a few weeks ago, sin generally, of, of, of the mistake of believing that we know better than God uh, what is right for us. But we could also look at sin, we could also characterize it uh, fundamentally as selfishness, as a, as a desire for self-preservation. 
at the expense of other people, a desire uh, 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 to cover your butts, uh, both literally and figuratively. That is, that's Adam and Eve's sort of situation, right? I can't see your reactions here, so I'm just going to assume that you're sitting there uh, in your pajamas la laughing and laughing at the cleverness of that observation. Maybe you're high-fiving each other because it was a good one. Um, but when God presses Adam on, on why he ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what happens is selfishness immediately kicks into gear. Uh, this blame game immediately starts, right? It wasn't my fault, Adam says. Blame Eve. Uh, Eve is the one who gave me the fruit. And then Eve's asked, and Eve says, the, the, the serpent deceived me and I ate. It wasn't my fault. This self-preservation, this me first at all costs. And when chaos strikes and when the world turns upside down, be it war or, or famine or sickness or natural disaster or anything else, humanity's first instinct uh, very much remains the same. It hasn't changed one bit in thousands of years. Forget everyone else. I'm looking out for me. Forget the needs of others. I'm stocking up. When things go wrong, the first thing to spike is, is what's called xenophobia, a fear of the other. Xenophobia is what leads to the atrocities we see committed during wars, uh, the, the genocides that we see, the prison camps, the killings. We get so driven into ourselves, we get so inward focused that everything outside of us, everything outside of our group or our people or our family is now perceived as a threat. And protecting ourselves starts to mean attacking the other. It's human nature. The moment this disease became a big issue, you immediately saw uh, spikes in, in racism, in negative speaking about foreigners and outsiders. You see immediate massive panicked overbuying and hoarding of important supplies and, and also unimportant supplies. Um, yeah, and this also uh, means to not let your ego um, get in the way of your decision making. Just because you decided that you know, it's not a big deal for your family or because you don't fall into higher risk categories. The nature of this season is that any decision you make is going to affect the people around you, the people that you're coming into contact with. And so we're called to have an outward looking view of this. Constantly be asking ourselves, who is my neighbor? Uh, what does it look like to put others first in this situation? The fourth thing we should not do, and this is the last one, is don't be afraid. Fear is everywhere around us. You don't have to look far to find people who are afraid or anxious. And it's easy to become anxious or afraid. But the Bible calls us over and over and over again to not fear. Do not fear. Do not fear. Do not be afraid. Uh, by Rick Warren's math, and I think he must include some synonyms uh, for fear in his count, uh, such as things like anxiety or being troubled. He counts 365 uh, expressions in the Bible calling us not to be afraid. That's one for every day of the year. This is the call from God over and over and over again throughout Scripture. Do not be afraid. I've got you. I hold you. I'm leading you. I have conquered death. Do not be afraid. I am with you. Uh, in 1 John, it says that perfect love casts out fear. And that casts out word is, is actually the word, uh, it's a pretty aggressive word. It's the word used for exorcism in the Bible. Perfect love exercises fear. It gets rid of the demon of fear in our lives. And as the world around us begins to fear and to clench and to become tight and to become anxious, we look to a God who we know to be in control over this. And we renounce the demon of fear. And instead, we cling to what we do know, to what we do understand. Uh, the writers of scripture understood 
that it's tough to focus on a negative. Um, there's this old joke my grandpa used to play on me when I was younger. He said, I'll give you $10 if you can go stand in the corner uh, and not think about elephants. And uh, it's impossible. I would stand there facing the wall and desperately try to fill my head with anything else. But really, all I was thinking about was elephants, 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 elephants. And so when we see the phrase, do not fear in the Bible, it's rarely an isolated command. But instead, what it does is it says, do not fear. And then it calls us to something higher, to something positive. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you, says the Lord. Do not fear, for the Lord your God will be with you. Do not fear, the Lord is your light and salvation. Do not be afraid, for I bring you great tidings of great joy. And so as we enter into an uncertain time, we cling to God's alternative to fear. We cling to the promise of Luke 14, 27, which says this, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives you do I give you. Let your hearts not be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. We have something different than the world does. We're drawing from a different source, a different well. And with that understanding, with that truth in mind, what I want to do is dig a little bit into this incredible verse of alternative to fear that we find in the New Testament. So this is Paul writing to Timothy, a young pastor, giving him this wonderful encouragement. And he's saying, and I take this at first here from the King James, because this is uh, how I memorized it as a child. These are the words that are familiar to me and many of you. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love, and of a sound mind. So I want to use that verse as a launching pad to talk about what we should do. We should not be dismissive. We should not be surprised or selfish or afraid. But just talking about what we shouldn't do isn't actually a very helpful exercise. What should we be doing? So I'll use the message translation of this verse now. I'll shift gears a little bit. And the message says that we are called to be bold, to be loving, uh, and to be sensible. So first, we should be bold. And and the word here in Greek is uh, dynamis. And it's also, uh, it's often translated through the Bible as, as miracles or empowered or supernatural power. So the word's not talking about uh, foolhardiness or riskiness or, or abandon or lack of caution. Uh, one Christian leader tweeted out recently that we're called far more often to be servants than we are to be snake handlers. We're called far more often to be servants than snake handlers. So rather, as, as, as we navigate this instability, what we can do is we can rest securely in the fact that we are anchored by a God and in a God who is under control, who is all-powerful. Uh, it's often useful to remind myself, uh, as I said in the prayer earlier, God doesn't get overwhelmed. He's not in heaven, you know, wringing his hands together, trying to remember not to uh, touch his face. God... God is in complete and total and effortless control of this situation. He knows what is happening. He knows what is coming. And he's promised us over and over again in scripture that we don't have to fear because he will be with us. That he's working things together for our good. That he's got a plan. That he walks beside us. One of uh, the definitions uh, of this word, this dynamis, that, that, that immediately caught my attention um, was the word meaning. Apparently this word can sometimes be used to describe 
meaning or giving something meaning. It's used in this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, where Paul is speaking about the gifts of tongues. And it reads, If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I am a foreigner to the speaker and they are a foreigner to me. So I really love uh, that distinction for this word. This isn't just kind of raw power, sort of um, loose, chaotic power, but it's power that gives meaning, that draws people towards something, uh, towards the supernatural, towards God. Tongues are useless if the meaning of the tongues, if that power isn't properly communicated or channeled. Um, we, We have an opportunity to be a light in the darkness, to give meaning and purpose and hope to people in, in a midst of a time uh, that many consider or feel to be to be meaningless and chaotic that's going to feel that way so that's real power as christians uh, it's our calling to be light in the midst of a hurting world in a time where people are hoarding and thinking of themselves we have a chance to be powerful refusing to get swept up in hysteria or panic thinking first of the the foreigner thinking first of the other thinking first of our neighbor when um when secular historians looked at the early church and tried to figure out why this ragtag group of people uh persecuted pushed aside grew at the uh uh, infectious sorry uh rate that they did one of the things that they point to at these early christians is is their response in times of chaos Uh, specifically actually during the early plagues. So what would happen in Rome is when there was a plague, uh, everyone who was still healthy would run away. They'd run out of the city. Um, The doctors included. uh, Doctors and uh, and medical care workers and and people in charge. Anybody who hadn't been infected would take off, uh, run to the hills. And, And Christians did exactly the opposite. Christians ran in. They ran to the sick and they ran to the hurting and they cared for them, and they stayed in the cities. That display of selfless love and sacrifice and service uh, was a key reason that the church grew. These people looked different. They behaved different. They acted different. Something different was driving them. They were anchored into something bigger than themselves, and people wanted to be a part of something like that. So what an opportunity to be a bold witness in this time. We, the church, in so many ways, are built for times just like this. This is our purpose, to be bold, to give meaning. And now we ask ourselves, in our context, what does it look like to live sacrificially? In, in an upside-down kingdom, what does it look like to put others before ourselves with supernatural boldness? So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. First, we should be bold. Second, we should be loving. So the love that's talked about here, the word that's used is a familiar one. It's agape love. It's brotherly love or family love. This sort of love is talked about over and over again in the Bible. It's very well defined for us. It's the kind of love that's talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's patient and it's kind and it doesn't envy and it doesn't boast and it isn't proud or rude or self-seeking and it's not easily angered and it doesn't keep score and it rejoices with the truth and it always protects trusts, hopes, and perseveres. And perfect love, we reminded ourselves earlier, casts out fear. It exercises fear. 
Love is also, I'm going to argue, profoundly nimble uh, and creative. It, the substance can look the same, but the container can look completely different depending on the context. The way I love my children looks different than the way I love my life, wife what? Which, and looks different than the way I love my life and looks different than the way I love my church or my coworkers or my friends or a stranger that I meet in the grocery store, but, but it's all love. We are called to be defined and characterized by and known by our love, just as God is love himself. So in this time, we need to ask ourselves some questions about how we adjust the container that our love is poured into. How do we adjust the ways that we love? Sometimes love is going to mean reaching out and connecting. And sometimes in this unique time, love is going to mean pulling back, creating physical space and separation, uh, even when it's not what you uh, personally wish you were doing. In seasons like this, we have an incredible opportunity to be creative with our love for others. There are so many ways that we can continue to be profoundly loving uh, even as we are asked by our governments, uh, you know, to limit physical contact, to practice this uh, social distancing. And and we're going to talk about some of those things on our Facebook page. And we're going to talk about some of those things in these weekly challenges that we're starting to send out. There are a lot of amazing things we can do. This week we talked about uh, the opportunity to give blood. What an incredibly practical way to show love uh, to the people around us, to expand the idea of who our neighbor is in this time when those donations are way, way down, uh, what an incredible witness it is and could be uh, if we uh, took that seriously and, and gave blood. Uh, if, they, if they had 120 or 130 or whatever people from Rosenort showing up over the course of the next week, what a cool thing that would be um, for us to show love in that way. I even think of... Um, Buying uh, gift cards to restaurants, something that I've seen suggested a few times. This sort of uh, idea of saying, you know, enjoy the meal later when things have blown over a little bit. Uh, but for now, for these restaurants that are that are struggling, where I mean, where the margins are, are tight, I think at the best of times for most restaurants, uh, in this moment, um, dropping by and picking up a gift card or ordering takeout or doing whatever you can to support in practical ways, uh, that actually becomes it becomes an ethical decision. It becomes something that can practically uh, show love. There are lots of ways to do that over this time with, uh, with our uh, checkbooks and our bank accounts to show love to local small business um, that is going to be struggling during this time um, as the economy goes through uh, you know, some uh, pretty painful things uh, in, in the name of uh, protecting, protecting the weak and, uh, and, and giving our... Uh, healthcare uh, workers a fighting chance against this thing. So uh, I want to encourage you as we go through this, as we uh, continue to process on Facebook, as we keep sending out these challenges, uh, let me know your ideas as well. We want to look at ways that we can be creative uh, as the church. We want to move away from that xenophobia uh, that I talked about earlier towards a radical xenophilia, towards a radical love uh, of the other, towards a radical love of the people around us and, and find ways in this process as you establish new rhythms, as you, as you look at new ways of, of doing uh, life and as some of these regular things uh, uh, change for the time being, find little rhythms in order to keep yourself focused outwards. I saw somebody post on Twitter, they talked about the idea of 
they were taking their hand washing time as prayer time. So people are encouraging, you know, good hand washing takes 30 seconds, 45 seconds. You're probably doing it more often during the day than you used to. Take that time and pray. Pray for people who are in hospital. Pray for the healthcare workers. Pray for, pick pick a group, pick, an, pick a, um, a neighbor and and pray. Bring that person before God or that group before God or that situation before God in an intentional way. Find ways to keep yourself focused on the others around us in, in a radical, Christ-like, sacrificial way. Third, uh, we should be sensible, is the word that's used here. And it's interestingly the only time in the uh, Bible that that word gets used. Uh, it's not used very, well, not used very often. It's only used once. Um, and so we, uh, we can't uh, cross-reference to kind of get a deeper sense of the understanding of the definition. But my Bible... Uh, dictionary uh, tells me that maybe the word um, isn't used or isn't translated quite uh, the right way, or or it would be difficult to kind of get the full meaning across in, in a single English word. The, the 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 dictionary talks about this idea that what Paul is actually calling Timothy here to is more than just being sensible himself, but actually to be a voice that calls people towards sensibility, to be somebody who calls people towards a sound way of thinking or a better way of thinking. So the, the, the best translation of the word maybe is to be someone who brings about sensibility or someone who brings about a sound mind. So as Christians, uh, we've walked away from that spirit of fear. We have, we have exercised that. We are resting in God's promise. Uh, and, and we have the ability to be um, people who bring a, a spirit of stability and calmness and sensibility. We have the opportunity to be voices uh, that direct others to that place, uh, to be voices of reason in the midst of chaos, to be a calming presence uh, and a peaceful presence um, in all things that we do together, in all conversations that we have let us continually focus on de-escalation, on, on, on being the sorts of people who bring about slower heartbeats, who bring about the unclenching of fists, the relaxing of shoulders. When we enter into conversation, whether it's about this virus, um, as so many conversations seem to be these days, or whether it's about something else, uh, let us be voices that speak of the big picture, that point out the good things in the world, that bring light uh, to dark places. There's a wonderful quote by C.S. Lewis that's been sort of cycling around, that's been circulating. I've seen it a few times. I think uh, uh, Pat Siemens posted it uh, a while back. Uh, and I think it bears repeating here. The, the, the context of the quote, of C.S. Lewis's quote, is, is uh, the atomic age. That's the world he was living in. That's the crisis that they found themselves in. And it was a very real fear that they had. Uh, and he has wonderful words of, of peace and calm uh, and refocusing sensibility in the middle of this. So I want to read uh, a bit of an expanded version of that quote uh, for you now. This is from C.S. Lewis. In one way, he says, uh, we think a great deal too much about the atomic bomb. How are we to live in the atomic age? I am tempted to reply, why, as you would have lived in the 16th century when the plague visited London almost every year, or as you would have lived in a Viking age when raiders from Scandinavia might land and cut your throat at night, or indeed, as you are already living in an age of cancer, in an age of syphilis, in an age of paralysis, 
in an age of air raids or railway accidents or motor accidents. In other words, do not let us begin by exaggerating the novelty of our situation. So then this is the first point to be made and the first action to be taken is to pull ourselves together. If we are all going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb, let that bomb, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things. Praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, playing tennis, chatting to our friends over a pint and a game of darts. Not huddled together like frightened sheep thinking about bombs. So that's very much the voice or the tone or the posture uh, that we should be, <coughs> excuse me, that we should be approaching ourselves, that we should be approaching this time with. Practical and sensible and calming. Not dismissive uh, or hand-waving away the real threat. Respectful of the measures that we've been asked to take by the government, but focusing in on the truth, the capital T truth of our situation. This has happened before. Under so many different names, it's going to happen again. And God is in control. We shouldn't be foolish, but neither should we let ourselves be frozen by what is going on around us. We must be sensible of sound mind and call others to the same. So as we close, I want to quickly acknowledge that for all the negative there is around this virus, there is actually something incredible, beautiful, to, beautiful to me, uh, incredibly beautiful to me about the reminder uh, that it has given the world. We're realizing altogether very quickly that we're connected, that we're interlocked, that we are in some ways uh, an organism, a body. We're all in this together. And as I see the waves of cancellations and adjustments and travel bans and quarantines, there's something horrific about it all. Um, but there's a layer of beauty there, isn't there? A, a, a respect, uh, a coming together, not in person, obviously, but but in thought, an agreement to put aside personal needs to serve the community, a solidarity with our brothers and sisters around the world. There's a, a beautiful video that I saw early in this, uh, back when uh, back when Italy was sort of at its peak uh, quarantine, uh, where people were singing from the balconies together. And by the power of editing, I've got that video queued up for you. It should show up uh, now. What a powerful display of humanity and togetherness and love and community in the midst of a difficult situation. So let us cling to those things. Uh, Mr. Rogers, uh, himself a former minister, has a well-known quote that often comes up in times like these. And it, he simply says, look for the helpers. Uh, he talks about it a little bit. And again, through the uh, magic of modern technology that should pop up right now. You know, my mother used to say a long time ago whenever there would be any really cat catastrophe that was 
on the, in the movies or, or on the air, she would say, always look for the helpers. There, were, there will always be helpers, you know, even just on the sidelines. That's why I think that if news programs could make a conscious effort of showing rescue teams, of, of showing who, uh, medical people, anybody who is coming into a place where there's a tragedy, to be, to be sure that they include that. Because if you look for the helpers, you'll know that there's hope. So this, uh, then, is the point of this sermon. What I hope that my words, uh, what I hope that those videos have drawn your heart uh, and your minds to. In all of this, let us be people who point towards the good. The good that is happening around us. The beauty in the creative, loving response of so many uh, during this adversity. And more than that, over top of that, uh, let us never forget the perfect good that is in control of all of this. Let us keep our eyes fixed on him who is love, who casts out fear, who walks with us. And let us, in the midst of darkness, take this unique opportunity to be a spotlight that draws people to Jesus. Let us breathe deeply. Let us do sensible human things and live not with a spirit of fear, but as people who are bold, loving, and sensible. Amen?